Bible and let's turn to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. If you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 929. We've got a lot to cover, so let's uh, jump in. I'm going to start reading from God's Word in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples... And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, we were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. And the next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, 
except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us now in this uh, time together, that you would protect us from Satan, that he might not pluck away the seed of the word from anyone here, but rather the seed would take root and grow to be 40, 60, 100 fold. I pray that... uh, The cares and the riches of this world and even the sufferings this life brings also does not choke the word or cause anyone to fall away from the word. Lord, we want this word to find good soil this morning. So by your Spirit's help and power, please do that. In Jesus' name, amen. So how would you end this sentence? I would consider my life well spent if... I would consider my life not to be a wasted life, but a well spent life if... What? If you keep a good job... If you provide for the family, if you save plenty for retirement, if you left the kids a little nest egg, if you got married, if you stayed married, if you gave your kids a good upbringing, if you helped as many people as possible, if everybody you met liked you. If you finally got that dream home built, if you checked off your bucket list, if you stayed healthy, even enough to reach 90, 95, how would you finish the sentence? The world would finish that sentence a lot of ways, some of which I just mentioned. But as a follower of Jesus, as someone who wants to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Not depart from me, you worker of lawlessness, but well done, good and faithful servant. I want to know more than anything else how Jesus would finish that sentence. It's the only answer that matters. It doesn't matter if we think our life is well spent if in the eyes of God we wasted it. In his book, uh, Don't Waste Your Life, John Piper writes, Oh, how many lives are wasted by people who believe that the Christian life means simply avoiding badness and providing for the family. 
So there's no adultery, no stealing, no killing, no embezzlement, no fraud, just lots of hard work during the day and lots of TV and PG-13 movies in the evening during quality family time and lots of fun stuff on the weekend woven around church mostly. This is life for millions of people, wasted life. We were created for more, far more. God doesn't leave us wondering what a well-spent life looks like. And he gives us a picture in Paul the missionary. At one time, Paul was wasting his life. And then he encountered the risen Lord Jesus. And by grace, Paul transformed his life into a well-spent life for Jesus. It's a life that God repeatedly tells us to imitate in Scripture. It's a life Paul himself rehearses for the elders to imitate in Ephesus. That's one reason why I'm linking the travel section with the first part of Paul's speech. The speech tells us why he's doing what he's doing. Verses 1 to 18 just plain exhaust you. Nine cities a day here, a week there, three months here. And the speech is where we kind of catch our breath to figure out what's going on. What's driving this man? What's filling his heart? What's determining his course in life? When I look at Paul's well-spent life, four characteristics stand out here in this in this passage, and one, it's a life constrained by the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the language he uses in verse 22. Behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. So why all the travel? Why the haste to Jerusalem? I mean, you, you could make the argument, well, Paul wants people to hear the gospel in Jerusalem again. And that would be true. According to verse 24. Or you might go to Romans 15 and make the case that Paul wants to finish out giving the collection to the poor in Jerusalem. But in and beneath those good reasons is the Spirit constraining Paul. Like Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem, Paul has The Spirit has led Paul to set his face to Jerusalem. Question, by the way you live your life, would anybody characterize you as a person constrained by the Holy Spirit? Are you taken over and led by the Spirit? Does does His Abba cry characterize your dependence throughout the day? Does his fruit captivate you? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control? Or would others say you're constrained by nearly all the same things the world is? That the power leading you isn't someone greater than you or someone greater than the world as much as it is the lure of entertainment and the hunger for recognition 
and the love of money and the desire for comfort and just the daily grind and all the deadlines next week and the tyranny of the urgent or whatever the latest controversy is on Facebook, who or what is steering your life and how you live your days? A life well spent is a life that honors the Spirit's leadership. J.I. Packer says that believers honor the Holy Spirit when they give Him His way in their lives and when His ministry of exalting Christ and convincing of sin, sinking them ever lower and raising Christ ever higher in their estimate goes unhindered and unquenched. The Spirit compelled Paul In the mission, nothing mattered to him more than doing what God revealed by the Spirit. And likewise, nothing should matter more to us than doing what the Holy Spirit reveals as we read what he's revealed in Scripture. He may not say to us specifically, I want you to go to Jerusalem and then to Rome, as he did with Paul, but... He's very plain how we follow Jesus wherever we live and whatever circumstances we might face. We'll spend our lives well when we honor the Spirit's leadership and heed what He's saying to the churches. Number two, the well-spent life is one consumed with the gospel of God's grace. It's one consumed with the gospel of God's grace. Paul is consumed with sharing the gospel with others. In verse 24, it's his race course. It's the ministry he received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. As long as he's running that race of making God's grace look glorious, it's a life well spent. Here, he shares the gospel in initial evangelism. Uh, as he's rehearsing in verse 20, he, he doesn't shrink from declaring anything that is profitable. Verse 21, he testifies both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He does this in public, he says. So think the synagogue and the hall of Tyrannus. He does it in private. It says house from house to house. He shared with all kinds of people, self-righteous Jews, pagan Gentiles, ethnicity, background, class, didn't matter. He shared with all. Paul also shares the gospel in ongoing encouragement of believers, of those who are already in the church. Verse 1, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said... Farewell. That, that's amazing, by the way. The whole city just rioted against Paul. If anybody needs to be encouraged, it's Paul. And yet, the first thing he's, we find him doing is encouraging the others. They've got to find the disciples. They've got to encourage them. He's focused on the well-being of others. He doesn't sit in fear and self-pity. He pursues their encouragement He does the same in verse 2, encouraging the disciples in Macedonia. 
Uh, a more word-for-word -word translation reveals that he did this through much word or with much word. Some of those words are, are perhaps like those he mentions in chapter 14, verse 22, where he says, he, it says he, continued, he encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Perhaps others reflected what he says in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, which he wrote during this, uh, this time uh, in Macedonia. Whatever was written in former days, this is Romans 15, 4, whatever was written in former days was written down for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. You think about that? The Holy Spirit inspired this Bible for your encouragement. That you might have hope. Paul's ministry of encouragement was rooted in, in much word, in much gospel word, in scripture. We can also see how consumed with the gospel he was at Troas. We get this story of Eutychus, which isn't a story saying preachers should preach shorter sermons. By the way, I know what you're thinking. You go the other way around, right? Don't fall asleep or you'll end up dead. No, what really stands out here is Paul prioritizing the word as God confirms that word with a pretty powerful sign. I mean, think about it. Paul teaches long into the night. Sleep overtakes this kid. He falls out the window three stories and dies. It's awful. Paul runs down. The ESV says he bent over him in verse 10. Uh, it's better translated, he, he fell upon the young man, throws himself on the young man. And that's significant because Elijah and Elisha performed the same kind of miracle in 1 Kings and 2 Kings. So God is basically authenticating Paul in his prophetic role, not to mention how this miracle links him with Jesus and Peter, who also restored others to life. And Paul falls upon the young man and taking him in his arms says, don't be alarmed for his life is in him. And the church is very encouraged by this, verse 12 says. So that word there for comfort is the same word we saw earlier in verses 1 and 2 for encouraged. They, they were encouraged. Who wouldn't be? I mean, if we serve a God who can give life to the dead, I mean, He can sustain us, He can deal with our problems, He can handle our church. He can raise us at the resurrection if, as we face death. So they're encouraged. God is at work here. Jesus is alive and powerful. He's bringing a kingdom where death will be no more. All these ways. They're encouraged by this. But notice the focus. That was verse 12. Notice the focus in verse 11, which is, which is what comes immediately after the miracle. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while, until daybreak, and so departed. It's, so, no, no, it's just so matter of fact. No hoopla. 
He just restored a kid's life and he picks up right where he left off and converses with them till daybreak. You can picture Paul, can't you? Like, he's good. His life's in him. Now, with his mouth full of food. What I was saying about Isaiah. He's just consumed with the gospel word and the church is right there with him, aren't they? Listening and hungry for more into the morning. He knows he doesn't have much time. He's leaving town the next morning. They're not going to see him again, so it's a unique situation. He's got to finish what he wants to say. It's like one of those secret church meetings that David Platt puts on. He's packing it all in, and by doing so, after restoring Eutychus, we see not only confirmation of the word he's preaching, but priority given to the word he's preaching. In Acts chapter 20, verse 32, Paul will commend the elders to the word of God's grace. Why? Because it's the word. It's not the miracles, but the word which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance. A well-spent life is a life consumed with the gospel of God's grace. Now, don't get me wrong. Not all are commissioned to the same role God entrusted to Paul. Nor will all of us have the same flexibility he had. He, not only was he single, but he uh, was also supported sometimes by some of the churches. Nor will all of us possess the same gifts that he had. We all have various gifts and roles and abilities and even physical limitations that differ, and that's okay. God designed the body that way so that we might need one another and work together. But all of us must be given over to the gospel and its advancement in the world somehow. Somehow. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. 1 Corinthians says that we are to imitate Paul's ways in Christ. Ephesians says we're to put on the full armor of God and two pieces of that armor are the gospel of peace and the sword of the Spirit. And the picture there is when our feet have the gospel of peace, we're running and we're telling people the good news of God's grace. If you truly know God's grace in Jesus Christ, it's, it's hard not to be consumed with it. I mean, there's no better news. There's nothing better to talk about. There's, there's no greater or more rewarding cause to give yourself to, but it starts with prizing the gospel of grace yourself. It starts with being amazed that though we once stood condemned before God, that in His love He sent His only Son to take our punishment away. And then He raised Him from the dead on the third day to give us life and newness of life to walk in. I mean, when your heart is full of that grace, it goes, it goes out to your family, it goes out to your spouse, it goes out to your church and your friends and your neighbors and your co-workers, and then eventually to the nations. That's one thing I love about Luke listing off in verse 4, like Sopater the Berean, uh, of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, Gaius of Derby, Timothy, the Asians, 
Take against the Trophimus. One other thing I love about him listing off these various partners and where they're from is that it's highlighting the gospel's growth from region to region as well as the church's participation and unity in getting the gospel out further. They're sending some of their best guys. You go with Paul. We'll stay here and hold the ropes. You go with Paul and take care. Let's get the gospel out. So Paul, along with these other churches, he planted or commissioning others to spread the gospel further. They're consumed with the gospel of grace. Number three, a life well spent is content when the path of suffering leads, when the path of obedience leads through suffering. It's content when the path of obedience leads through suffering. Verse one uh, recalls the riot against Paul in Ephesus. Verse 3 says the Jews made a plot against Paul after three months in Greece. Uh, In verse 19, Paul says he served the Lord with tears and with trials that happened to him through the plots of the Jews. Paul's life was marked by suffering in the path of obedience, and it wasn't going to get any easier. Look at verse 22 says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So here we discover that his race course, that, that course, Jesus, Jesus rescued Paul and put him on a particular Race course, and that race course will lead Paul through more suffering. The course, it bends around the way, and he can't see everything, but it will involve imprisonment and afflictions. That is, as long as he stays on the race course. Can you hear the world persuading him to do otherwise? Can you hear America talking back to Paul? Why would you do that? Why would you move there? Don't you know it's not safe? Or haven't you done enough? You just finished your third missionary journey. Just retire and take it easy for a change. Stop being so serious about eternity, Paul. I've heard of family members saying things like that to missionaries, missionaries we know. Why would you take your kids there? It's not safe. Why risk your life there? Isn't there lost people here? Elizabeth Elliot, they speared your husband to death. Why go back to the same people and offer them forgiveness? John Patton, there are cannibals on that island. If you go and tell them the gospel, they're going to eat you.
I love his comeback too, by the way, which was to say to that old man, whether I'm eaten by cannibals or you're eaten by worms on the day of resurrection, we're both coming out of the grave. Helen Roosevelt, why would you ever choose the Congo? Isn't that the rape capital of the world? And they did rape her, but she brought them Jesus. Count the cost here, beloved. Our race isn't Paul's race exactly, but we also can't get around John 15, 20. A servant is not greater than his master if they persecuted me they will persecute you. Or 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or 1 Peter 2.21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you, so that we might follow in His steps. So the path of obedience, the path of love, leads through suffering. Are you content with that? I mean, if we're going to finish the race, we have to be content when the race leads through suffering. That doesn't mean some stoic attitude of keep calm and carry on. No contentment in suffering rises from the relationship we share with Jesus and the words that we know are true in Him. This isn't contentment from self-sufficiency. It's contentment rising from Christ's sufficiency. It comes from knowing that Jesus is with us even to the end of the age, as He said. Matthew 28, 20. It comes from knowing our sufferings are not meaningless. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So our sufferings in the path of obedience are doing something. They're preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. It comes from resurrection hope, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Paul says, We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Contentment also comes from knowing the reward is worth more than all of our sacrifices. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 to 8. So what we're reading in Acts, Paul is just, he's on the race course. And when he writes 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's finishing the race. He's about to cross the finish line. Listen to what he says. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. That's the same word he uses in Acts 20. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And henceforth there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, 
which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all, this is where you're included, if you stay on the racetrack, but all who loved his appearing. Can you, I mean, can you imagine Jesus in his, all of his glory and refulgent splendor crowning you? That will keep you going on the race course. These realities are yours in Christ and they fuel contentment to obey Jesus when the race leads through suffering. And lastly, the well-spent life cherishes Jesus and values faithfulness to Him more than life in this world. Cherishes Jesus and values faithfulness to Him more than life in this world. I, I shaped the whole sermon around verse 24. If Maybe you saw that already. Paul knows suffering is coming, but what, what keeps him in the race... And it's this, he says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So he's saying, if I, if I weigh my life in this world... Think of even good things like friends and family and the freedoms you might enjoy here in America. Think of flowers. I mentioned flowers because Richard Wormbrand writes when he's in prison, you don't see flowers in prison. Think, think of good things. If Paul is, Paul is saying here that if I could weigh that life in this world, over against Jesus and the race He set before me, Jesus' side is infinitely greater. It's infinitely more valuable. He's so valuable, His reward is so glorious, I can lay this body down. What's imprisonment and affliction really... If I can have Jesus and please Him and have Him crown His crown, that's, that's the way Paul thinks. I don't account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only His life is valuable only as it shows Jesus to be supremely valuable. If you're not spending your life that way, making Jesus look supremely valuable, making His grace look glorious, you're wasting your life. A well-spent life so cherishes Jesus that it gladly sacrifices everything to make Him look supreme. This is a weighty message to prepare this week. This is a weighty message to prepare for you and dwell on all week. And go, how is, how is this going to land Sunday? 
Because it's causing me to evaluate all kinds of things in my, in my own life. The kingdom of heaven, it says, is like, this is Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Question, where is the worth of the treasure displayed? According to Matthew 13, 44. It's displayed in the man selling everything to gain the treasure. The value of something is measured by what we're willing to to give in order to have it. God displays the worth of Jesus when we give up everything to have Him, even our own lives in this world. And that's why we exist. Now that might mean some of you quit your jobs and sell everything and give yourself to frontier missionary work or relief efforts among refugees and unreached peoples of the world. And that would be awesome if some of you did. But many of you will stay and support them and continue the work here. And you'll return to your homes tonight and parenting and friends. You'll return to your vocations and your studies tomorrow. And how will you spend your life well based on the things that we've observed from Paul's life? Well, we will spend it well if we're not driven first by needs, by deadlines, by paychecks, by fears, by other people's expectations and approval, by Facebook posts. Instead, we'll be driven first by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the Spirit pressing that Word into our lives. You may still do all these other things, but you'll do them in the strength that Jesus supplies through the Spirit and not in your own strength. We'll do them in love, we'll do them in joy and with peace and with patience and with gentleness and with goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Why? Because the Spirit will bear this fruit as we give ourselves to Him and lean upon Him for His strength and direction. We'll also spend our days well if we're consumed with the gospel of God's grace. And I don't mean in an annoying sense of consumption where you don't listen to others and you don't do your job well, and you don't seek to understand people and care for them as whole persons. It's not what I mean. But I do mean in a comprehensive sense. The gospel of God's grace will be so much a part of you, and you will have such a love for it that it will will touch everything in your life. Touch all your relationships, control the words coming out of your mouth, control the things on your heart and your mind. 
Grace will free us from the need for other people's approval. Right? We've been made right with God. We don't need their approval. God's opinion is all that matters. Grace enables us to be a people of thanksgiving instead of a people that complain and murmur all the time. Grace frees us from the fear of man so that now we do our work wholeheartedly unto the Lord and not to please men. This is Colossians. Our reward is with the Lord, not in the paycheck or in the recognition by others. And you know what? Folks will recognize that about you. Or consider... What you do with your money, the money that you do make. Ephesians 4 says that we work in order to make money, in order that we may have money, in order that we might share it with those who are in need. So when you're not blowing money like the world, and not freaking out when the stock market dips, people start asking you to give a a reason for the hope that's in you. And then you get to step in and say things like, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the reason for the whole, I'll tell you why, my, my, why, I'm, why I love giving my money away. Because he who is rich became poor for my sake. In order that I, by his poverty, might become rich in God. In him we have everything we truly need. When you're consumed with grace and living under grace, magnifying grace in speech becomes the rhythm of your life. Because you're talking about it, you're full of it, people are asking you about it. We will also spend our days well if we're content when obeying Jesus leads us through suffering. Whether that's persecution Physically or someone writing you off as a fool for believing these things. Whether that's torture or your boss mocking your faith behind your back. It's all, it's all included. And during these times we must recall Jesus' words in Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account... Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. And finally, we'll spend our life well if we cherish Jesus and value faithfulness to him more than life in this world. Consider the sentence we started with. I would consider my life not wasted but well spent if... Can you answer that sentence now? I hope we can say, it will be well spent if I cherish Jesus today and remain faithful to Him. That's all that matters. My life will be well spent today if I cherish Jesus and remain faithful to Him. That's all that matters from day to day until we meet Jesus. Not 
did I pacify every complaint? Not, did others recognize me? Not, did I get all of my lists checked off? Not, did I meet that deadline? Not, did I keep the house clean? Not, did I get all the schoolwork done? Not, did I bring the paycheck home? Not, did I know everything about this subject? Or did I always have the right words to say in the right moment at the right time? What's everybody thinking of me when I didn't? Just one thing matters. Did I cherish Jesus and count faithfulness to Him better than life in this world? Who cares if there's clothes everywhere in your house if it meant your kid heard the gospel? Who cares if others didn't see you and what good thing you did, whether that's in church or with friends or family or with in the workplace. They, they, missed, they missed the good thing I did. I didn't get rewards. He got praise. I didn't get praise. Who cares if your reward is with Christ? One thing matters. And this is the question we ask. Did I cherish Jesus in the midst of this and count faithfulness to Him better than life in this world? Amen.